to Joshua chapter 2 for our Bible study. Joshua chapter 2. And if you need a Bible so you can follow along with us in our study tonight, just lift up your hand and one of the handsome ushers that are making their way up and down the aisles will uh, drop a Bible off to you. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you can make that your own. Write your name in it, mark it up, bring it back, and don't take another one. (laughs) So Joshua um, chapter 2 tonight. Product developers, clothing designers, TV producers, mechanical engineers, culinary experts, and advertising agents spend countless hours and multiplied millions of dollars not perfecting products, but analyzing what those products appear to be when you, the consumer, see them. And the reason for that is because they know that it isn't the quality of what's inside that product that's going to cause you to bite the bait and buy it, but rather it's what that product looks like on the outside, the appearance of it, that's going to be the thing that's going to draw you to make a decision and to purchase and to buy. Now, all of us have fallen prey to that. We've given in to the picture that we saw in the menu at the restaurant or the color scheme of the appliance that we purchased and installed in our kitchen only to find that it didn't quite measure up. Or we gave in to the shiny finish and the armor all dashboard of that used car that we thought, well, for sure, this cannot be a lemon. Look at the shape that it's in, you know. And we've all done that in one form or another only to discover that the appearance of the product didn't measure up with the quality of what was really going on on the inside. And that's a fault of human nature is that we are given to go with what we think things are or we assume they are based on their appearance rather than what really might be going on on the inside. It's a principle that we will see tonight in Joshua chapter 2. And we're in Joshua chapter 2. It's a study of the children of Israel coming into the promised land that God swore to give to Abraham and to his descendants some 400 plus years before the time of which we find ourselves in our study tonight. But for you and me, the book of Joshua serves as a study that gives us insight and instruction of how do we as Christians, those that are in Christ, walking with the Lord, how do we enter into the fullness and the richness of the fruitful, victorious Christian life? And that's what God desires to speak to us, to show to us, Uh, in it. And so tonight as we come to chapter 2 of Joshua, we find Joshua and the Israelites still encamped on the east side of the Jordan River. They haven't yet come into the land that God promised to give to them, and they're there making preparation for that conquest. Now, in chapter 2, there is a touch of sequence. In other words, There is a little bit of information that gives us 
a continual narrative of how they're going from where they are in the wilderness to into the promised land. However, that narrative is very small in chapter 2. It's only three verses. Verse 1, and then the last two, verses 23 and 24. The rest of the chapter is basically a parenthetical story. It doesn't have much to do with them taking the land at all. But rather, chapter 2 gives to us the story of how God, in the middle of what he was doing with his people, with Israel, how he reached into the life of a freewheeling yet free-falling woman who lived in the city of Jericho, a Canaanite who God reached into her life to save her family, secure her future, and also seal her eternal salvation. And so chapter 2, there's a cast of characters. If you look with me at verse 1 there, uh, the first character that we meet in chapter 2, it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So the first character that we meet in this story is, of course, whom the book is named after, the man Joshua. And and we saw last week that Joshua has been equipped, prepared, called, and hand-placed by God into the position that he now occupies. He is the leader of Israel, the one who is going to bring them in to this inheritance. We know that he is a man who's full of faith. He's full of wisdom. He's full of courage And he has the support of the people. They have told him that we will be with you and we will support you in the thing that God has called you to do. However, even though he's full of faith and wisdom and skill and courage and he has the support of the people, he finds himself at this point facing the greatest challenge that he'll ever face in his entire life. In fact, it's the challenge that every other challenge that he ever had previously was preparing him for. And he also knows that all of the eyes of the people of God, three million strong at least, were upon him to see what it was that he was going to do in this situation. He also knows that even though God has promised to give them the land, that he's going to give it to them, that it's a promise, he also knows that he still has a part to play in obtaining that promise and bringing the people into that inheritance. You recall back in chapter 1, verse 3, the promise that God gave to Joshua, he said, every place the sole of your foot treads upon I have given it to you. And there's an interesting play on tenses there in that verse. Because he speaks of the treading of the foot as something yet future, but of the giving of the land of something that's already done. He said, every place the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you. So, though it's given to them by promise, there's a part for Joshua to play because he has to lift and move his feet. And so, as a man called, placed in this position with all of the eyes of the nation upon him, 
with this incredible conquest in front of him that he is the leader of, he has to step out in the faith now to do the thing that God said that he is to do, and there is action for Joshua to take. Now, he doesn't know at this point that the walls of Jericho are just going to fall down because of God's providential, miraculous hand in just giving Jericho. He doesn't know that that's going to happen. And so he knows that he has to do something, that he has to put feet to the faith that he has. It's amazing to me, being a Christian myself and observing Christians constantly, it's amazing to me to see how many Christians are not willing to put feet to their faith. They, as it concerns their entering into their own personal promised land. They know that God has a plan for them. They know that he has something that he wants to do in their lives. But yet, rather than go out and do their fart, part, excuse me, and walk on that, <laughs> that, that inheritance. <laughs> See, I, I can make you laugh, you know. <laughs> Red-faced pastor, right? (laughs) Rather than make a move in that area as they wait on God to give them that job or that career path or that purpose for their life that they've been waiting, they'll just sit on their hands and more or less do nothing waiting for the phone to ring or for something to happen on its own. Rather than stepping out and making a phone call or or, or being involved in in ministry, hoping to maybe meet their future spouse, that person, instead they'll surf the internet. They'll go on Christian Mingle or some other internet dating site, hoping that somehow God is going to work that out miraculously and that they'll find their promised land, not by being engaged in kingdom activity, but rather just sitting at home and hoping that something just happens or discover their calling, or the gifting, or the purpose, the ministry that God has for their life. Listen, we have to have feet to go along with our faith. Yes, God's going to deliver the promised land into our hand. We'll look back years after we've been victorious, and we'll say, Lord, look at what you've done, how you have led, and how you have blessed. But all the while, we'll see the footsteps that we took as we sought to walk with God and to allow him to lead our steps into that plan that he has for our lives. And we see that in this man Joshua, this man of faith, as he prepares to take the land, he sends these spies into the land. And that brings us to our second character in this. And this is, of course, these two spies that Joshua um, sends in to this land. And, and, and it says that there. He says, go and view the land, especially Jericho. And it says, so they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and they lodged there. Now, why does Joshua send in these two spies? As a military leader, as the general, the one in charge, he knows that he needs intelligence. The mighty men, The fighters, they're going to be looking at him, seeking direction, wanting instruction. Where are they to go? How are they to go about this this strategic plan? Even though it's God, he knows he needs intelligence. 
And so he sends these spies in to find out what's going on in the land. How is the city situated? Where are their weak spots? What's the morale amongst the people in the land? What are they talking about? How are they prep- preparing for battle? You know, and, and what Israel and the God of Israel is going to bring against them. So he sends them in hoping to get some intelligence and find out what's the best course of action to do. He's also following the instruction, or I'm sorry, the example that he received from Moses some 40 years previously. When the children of Israel were preparing to go into the promised land the first time under the direction of Moses, Moses also sent in spies into the land to, you know, do the same thing, bring back an intelligence report to Moses. However, we know, and Joshua knew, that didn't work out so good. Ten of those spies came back and they corrupted, polluted, discouraged the heart of of the entire nation to the point where they were too fearful to go in and take the land. So Joshua follows the example of sending in spies. But this time, it's not 12 elected heads of tribes, but it's two privately appointed, hand-selected men that Joshua knows are full of faith and that will not come back and say, Joshua, there's no way that we can do this, you know. So Joshua sends in these two spies into the land. Now, it tells us that when those spies came in, it says that they went to the house of the harlot named Rahab. Now, you read that and you say, did did I read that right? Did the people of God choose to keep company to lodge with and stay at a harlot's house? I mean, isn't that not the kind of place that God-fearing God-appointed men would be hanging out. I mean, shouldn't they be at some different kind of an inn or maybe at a Christian mission or or something? Why is it that they would stay at the house of a harlot? Aren't they concerned about God's reputation or what people might say or how that might turn, you know, on them doing it that way? Why would they go to the house of a harlot? Well, a couple of things to think about, suggestions, if you would. First of all, It's in the house of a harlot that it's common for people to remain nameless and anonymous. Typically, those that go to the house of a harlot aren't there to broadcast who they are or what their business is. And so it's a strategic place to go if they want to remain anonymous, which they do. Also, in the house of a harlot where you would go, it would silence all suspicion as to why these two foreigners are there in the land. See, if two men come in that nobody knows who they are and they look ominously suspicious as to what their intent, what they're doing, why are they here? And they go into the harlot's house, at that point, everyone just says, oh, that's why they're here. Because you don't go to the house of a harlot in your own city. Do you understand that? Because everybody's going to know you were there and the word will travel quickly. And so they go in there and it silences the suspicion of why they're there, what they're doing. Number three, in a harlot's house, there's a price for everything, including silence. And perhaps they feel by going there, they'll be able to gain intelligence, insight into what's going on in the city, 
And at the same time, they'll be able to secure the silence of those that they speak to, or they'll be able to glean conversations sitting at the you know, countertop drinking 7-Up and just listening to the conversations of those that are, are, are there in the place, you know. And, and so it's a strategic place for them to be. But I, I believe there's a, a fourth and even greater reason why they went to this house. And it doesn't lie with their strategy at all. But rather, it lies in the heart of God that he sees something in this free-falling, free-wheeling woman. He sees something in her heart And he wants to do a work within her life, and he wants to reach her. And so God moves these men, brings them to this house where they encounter this woman, Rahab, who is the third character in the character sketch. Who is Rahab? Look with me at verse 2. It says, It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, that is, the gate of the city, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, when she had laid in, or which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So who is this woman? Rahab. There's two sets or two lists of observations that we make about this woman. The first is what we know about her outwardly, and the second is what we discover about what's going on in her heart inwardly. Who is she outwardly? Well, first of all, we discover that she's a woman who has a house on the wall of the city in close proximity to the gate, which would be the place where, of course, people would go out and come into the city. But at the same time, the gate was the place where government took place. It was the place that was happening. It would be like the epicenter, you know, kind of like, you know, the closer you are to Manhattan, the closer you are to the action type of a thing. And typically, the houses that would be built upon the wall would be the more expensive real estate. It afforded you a a degree of safety, security, a view inside and out of the city. Again, it's close to where commerce and business and decisions are being made. And so this woman Rahab is probably somewhat successful. She's sharp, probably business savvy. She's not the kind of woman that you would mess with or that you could easily pull one over on. Even as here, she deceives the king and he believes her words, you know. And so she's this woman with this air of outward success, regardless of the questionability of her occupation and what it is that she's doing. We also discover that she is a vested citizen of Jericho. She's known by and trusted by the king. He comes to her declaring what he was there for, and he explained to her his business. He didn't say, hey, step aside, here's a warrant, we're searching the place, but he trusts her enough 
that if these two men are there, he no doubt knows that she's going to deliver them to him. He knows who she is, and he trusts her. She is a vested citizen of Jericho, making her a heathen Canaanite. That's what she is. She's a heathen Canaanite. We also know about this woman, Rahab, that she knows, she understands that she's in trouble. From the view of her window, she can see out across the Jordan River and she sees this mass of Israeli citizens gathering there on the river, making preparations to come into the land. And she knows that on their passageway, they have to pass through Jericho, that they're next on the list. And as she sees that congregation of God's people there, coupled with what she knows about them from their history, she knows that their city lies in the path of God's judgment. And so somewhere inside, she knows that she's condemned. The next thing the Bible tells us right there in verse 4 at the beginning, it says, then the woman. We know that she's a woman. You say, well, yeah, of course she's a woman. We already gathered that. Well, that's significant, and here's why. Because in that culture, in those days, women didn't have the status equally that men enjoyed in that culture. If you were a man, you were at the top of society's rungs. But if you were a woman, you were a few steps down. And we're told by the cultural studies of those days that they held rank right about the same place as livestock. That that's the way women were viewed. And so Rahab would have about that much uh, status in that time being a woman. We also know that she's a liar. She told a whopper to the king of Jericho, so believable that he immediately commissioned his men to go and leave the city and chase after these men, hoping that he'll be able to find them. And, And then she says, I don't know where they were from. And maybe you'll catch him. And so she tells this incredible lie. And we see that this woman is a great liar. And finally, we understand clearly from the story that she is a prostitute. That she has an extremely questionable, at best, occupation. An immoral, ungodly lifestyle. Now, some Bible teachers, commentators, theologians will point out and they will say that this word harlot that's used here in Joshua chapter 2, that it's interchangeable with the word innkeeper. And and that maybe Rahab wasn't really a harlot. Maybe she was just the keeper of the inn, and that's a mistake in the translation. I have a couple of problems with that. First of all, in the New Testament, Rahab is mentioned twice in both references as a harlot. And in the Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, the word harlot means harlot. And so the Bible doesn't give that leeway when you bring the New Testament interpretation of who this woman was into it. She was a harlot. Second of all, one of the most powerful and impacting points about this story is that God was reaching into the heart of a condemned heathen, Canaanite, lying prostitute woman and revealing his love to her and saving her from the wrath to come because of the faith that she had in him. And that makes it a very powerful, very important story. You say, back up just a minute. Let's go back to the lying thing. I've heard this before. We know that Rahab, from our New Testament readings, we know that Rahab is a person who occupies a place in the hall of faith. That she was saved. God redeemed this woman, but yet, He did it 
through a lie. Her faith is commended, but that commendation is coupled with the fact that she lied to the king of Jericho. What gives there? Because the Bible tells us that we're not to lie. In fact, it's one of God's top ten. Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. It's a command that God has. How could God save a woman who is a liar? Is God condoning lying in this text, in this story? No, no. God is not condoning lying. Think for a minute who it is that's telling a lie. This is Rahab the harlot. She's not saved. What do you expect this woman to be doing? If you want to say, well, lying is okay, it's justified, I can lie as a believer, as a Christian, because Rahab lied and God justified her and that was okay. Here's what I will tell you. If you are a condemned heathen Canaanite, lying prostitute woman, then yes, you can lie. But otherwise, the Bible says that you're not to lie. That every man is to speak truth with his neighbor, the Apostle Paul said. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies and the father of those who tell lies. and We are not to be liars. It's never necessary for the child of God to lie. Even Rahab, had she at this point been saved, and let's say she told the truth, God would have made some other way where these men would have escaped the hand of the king of Jericho, and they still would have accomplished their mission. And God doesn't ever need us to twist the truth or turn a fib into a fabrication, into a bold, fast lie or anything in between. He never needs us to do that in order for him to accomplish his ends or for us to protect ourselves. The problem with lying is that it always grows. That when you tell a lie, and it's just maybe a white lie, and you could say it's no big deal, now you have to cover that white lie, and you have to continually remember what you said. And and oftentimes it leads to embellishing upon that story in order to keep it going, and that lie always becomes more than what it ever was intended to be. And, And here's the problem. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 8, verse 17. He said, there is nothing secret that will not be exposed or anything that it was spoken that will not be revealed. Everything is ultimately going to come out into the light. All lies will eventually be exposed. You can't get away with it. And eventually what happens when that lie comes out, your character becomes demeaned or diminished. Because now you are a liar. You're not trustworthy. People can't believe what you say, you know, or trust you with information. Because you've shown yourself to be a dishonest person. And that's an extremely difficult thing to rebuild once you've destroyed it, once you've diminished it. Conversely, if you're a person who tells the truth, that will always elevate your character. Even when you tell the truth in a situation where it's going to get you into some trouble or some hot water or it means you're going to have to admit that you did something you know, that you shouldn't have done or said something that you shouldn't have said. When you tell the truth in those situations, it's amazing how even though maybe it's a little embarrassing or a little bit humiliating, what happens is that your character goes up in the person's eyes because they know that you're trustworthy. How, how, I, I've done that before where I've had to confess. Yeah, I wasn't sick. I didn't want to come to work, you know, or, you know, that situation. And it's it's embarrassing, it's demoralizing, but it's amazing how trustworthy you become 
in the eyes of those whom you're dealing with. So for the Christian, lying, never necessary, not condoned in Scripture. We recognize who it was, this woman Rahab, who's lying. But there's another list of characteristics that this woman Rahab carries that we can examine in the Scripture. Look with me at verse 8. It says, now before they, that being the spies, laid down, she came up to them on the roof. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token or a sign, a pledge. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Your attention again. The first thing that we recognize about what's going on inside Rahab under the surface where no one else can see is that we discover that she is a woman who knows who God is. Three times she uses his name, not generically as lowercase l-o-r-d or your god but capital y-h-v-h the name that god gave to moses when he said who do i tell them i am yahweh that's the word that rahab uses three times we know that the lord has given you the land and we discover that she knows who god is calling him three times by his name it is true that canaan was a godless place that Jericho was a godless city. But that doesn't mean that they didn't know who God was. They knew who God was. Remember that this was the land where Abraham dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, where the foundations of Israel were. They knew who Abraham was. They still know who Abraham is in that land, even to this day, the enemies of the Lord. It wasn't that they didn't know who he was. It was that they didn't surrender to his ways. They wouldn't give themselves to his lordship or his headship. They had a head knowledge about him, but that doesn't mean that they were in covenant relationship with him. She knew who God was, but it's not enough just to know who God is. Somebody said one time that hell is going to be filled with many good people. And hell is going to be filled with many people who know exactly who God is. Because it isn't knowing who God is that gets you into heaven or that secures your salvation. But rather, it's being in covenantal relationship through him by faith 
in his sacrifice and what he supplied for us on the cross of Calvary through his son Jesus. That's what saves a person. Not if they know about God or if they go to church or if they can quote scripture, but rather it's do you know him intimately, personally, and have you made peace with God through the cross and the blood of his son? And we find that, hey, Rahab, she knew who God was, but she didn't know him personally. She wasn't saved by him. We, we also understand from her own mouth that she is a woman who is filled with fear. She understands the complexity and the you know, darkness of the situation that she is in, both, first of all, in her city. She knows that her city cannot be saved. She understands that. She says to them, we know what happened in Egypt. Now, Egypt in that day was the powerhouse of the world. They were the center of the world militarily, economically, politically. Egypt was the place. And they had heard what God did to the Egyptians, how he sunk their military and destroyed their Pharaoh in the Red Sea, miraculously delivering his people. And when something like that happens to a nation that large, everyone hears about it. And Rahab says, we heard what happened in Egypt. We also heard what happened recently with Sihon and Og, two kings that are more powerful, greater in stature than we are here in Jericho. And we know that God delivered them into your hands. And we know when we heard those things that God has given you this land. And ever since the time that we heard those things, we know that our city is bound for destruction. This woman, Rahab, had the wisdom and the foresight to see that she was in a city that was condemned. And she could see into the future to understand that the destiny of her dwelling place was damnation. And she was right. Joshua chapter 6, verse 24, tells us that they burned the city of Jericho with fire. The future of her dwelling place was exactly as she supposed it would be, destruction by fire. And the result of that knowledge, that intuition, gripped her with a faint-heartedness, a fear, knowing that she was in trouble, that the situation in her city was bad. But not just the situation in her city, but also her position personally. That being who she was, where she was, and a citizen of the city that she was a citizen of, she knew every night when her head hit the pillow that something was not right in her life. And no matter how much money she would make, no matter what men she had laying by her side or relationships going on with them, no matter what status she would enjoy being who she was, where she was, or any of the pleasures that this life could afford to her could ever satisfy the emptiness that she felt inside knowing that there must be more, that there is a Lord, that there is a God that's greater than the pagan idols of Jericho. And so we're told that she is filled with fear. But we also discover here that she has faith. That she's a woman who has faith. In verse 9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. In verse 11, she says, uh, she makes a profession at the end of the verse. She says, for the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath that she makes this profession and that she has faith in the true and the living God. Now, this point amazes me. Why? 
Because here's a woman in a Canaanite society, godless, far from God as possible, who simply hears the story of what the God of Israel did in Egypt and to Sihon and Og, and it produced in her a faith in the God that she was hearing about. Now that's remarkable. That's amazing. Because conversely, on the other side, you have the Israelites who experienced that deliverance. They're the ones that walked through the Red Sea and watched God destroy the army of the Egyptians. They were there when Sihon and Og fell to the sword of the mighty men. They saw their cities taken captive, and they watched manna fall from heaven, and water come out of the rock, and the earth open its mouth and swallow Dathan and Abiram, and leprosy smite Miriam, and then miraculous healing come upon her. And they saw miracle after miracle after miracle as God led them. But yet what we read about them is that they didn't have even the faith that this heathen Canaanite lying prostitute woman, Rahab, had there in Jericho. What's the point? Here's the point. The Bible says in the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Many times people think, well, if I could just see a sign from God, I would believe. If God would just do something to show himself or to reveal his power, his strength, then I would put my faith in him. I would step out and stand upon his promises or live for him fully or accept his son into my life, the sacrifice of Christ. But until I see something from God, I'm not going to believe. Here's what I submit to you, is that even if God did the most miraculous thing you could ever imagine, that would not produce even an ounce of faith within you. Signs and wonders don't produce faith. Israel is the testament to that. What does? The hearing of the word. Rahab says, we heard what God did to the Egyptians. We heard what he did to Sihon and Og, and ever since the day that we heard it, our hearts fainted within us. Faith is birthed in the heart, not through seeing what we see with our eyes, but it's through what we hear with our ears. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to divide asunder between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The faith in God that we have comes not from what we see, but what we hear. It's in the word. She says, the day we heard it, our hearts fainted within us. What happened to Israel the day they heard it? Keep a finger here and turn to Numbers chapter 13. In Numbers chapter 13, we find out what was going on in the camp of Israel at the same time Jericho was getting word about what God did in Egypt. See, in Jericho, their hearts were fainting. They were filled with fear because they knew that it was only a matter of time before God overthrew their city, and so their hearts fainted within them. Well, what about Israel, the people that saw the signs, that received the promises? Numbers chapter 13, look with me at verse 26. It says, now they, and this is the 12 spies that we talked about earlier that Moses had sent in. It says, they departed and they came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So they come back. They're bearing 
grapes the size of basketballs, pomegranates that, you know, it takes two men to carry, the fruit of the land that that they're going to go in. And they told him and they said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb, one of the two faithful spies, quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him, the ten spies, the unbelievers, it says, they said, we are not able to go up against this people. Listen, verse 31, the end of the verse, it says, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Again, the seeing of the eyes. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now listen. What we're hearing from the mouth of one of the citizens of those cities of Jericho is that this is absolutely false. That not only were they not stronger than the children of Israel, but they also didn't see the children of Israel as grasshoppers in their sight. But Rahab said, our hearts are filled with terror. The Bible tells us this. The Bible says this. It says, all things are possible to those who believe. That nothing can stand in the way of someone who takes God at his word and has faith. God had given them the land. He gave them a promise that they could go in and take it. But they didn't believe that promise. And here's what we learned. Here's the principle for you and for me. Is that though faith ventures us unstoppable, fear cripples faith. That if we allow fear to grip our hearts and we begin to doubt the promises of God because of whatever reason, fear will cripple and take out our faith. And we see that happen to them. They didn't enter into the promise that they had because of the fear that they had. You say, what's the remedy of that? Because quite honestly, I often find myself fearful when it comes to embracing God's promises. Will he really come through? The answer is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. And it says this, John writes and he says, There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. The answer is that perfect love casts out fear. When you and I know that God is for us and not against us, when we know that he is going to complete the work that he began, and that he's going to fulfill every word that he promises to us, nothing can stop us when we know that he loves us, when we're secure in that love. Failure for us, is it leaves us in a better place than where we began. See, because 
Fear is the enemy. Fear will wipe us out. But when we know that God is for us, nothing can stop us. What are you afraid of tonight? Every one of us has territory that's in front of us to take. There's something for each one of us that God is dealing with us in, an area. Something that he's challenging us to do, or something he's challenging us not to do, or something that he's promising to give to us, but we can't see how it will ever come through that he would do it. What's stopping you? The Bible says that you can venture out in faith and that nothing will stand before you. You say, but it's, it's too big for me. To try to start a business in this environment, in, in, in this day and age, it, it can't be done. The, the, the red tape is too thick and the restrictions and the taxes and, and, and all of these different things that we can look at and say, the giants of the land. But the Bible says that God is stronger than those things and that he renders us unstoppable before our enemies. What is it that we're afraid of? Now, here's the amazing thing about this encounter that these men have with Rahab here. At this point, in the story, they have all the intelligence they need. She just confessed and said, we're afraid of you. And they said, that's all we needed to hear. And amazingly, when they go back at the end of the chapter and report to Joshua the things that they learned, that's all they say. They say, God's given it to us. They're afraid of us. We got them. Listen, Christian, they that be with us are more and stronger than they which be with them. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Nothing can separate us from God's promise being fulfilled and his purpose being accomplished in and through our lives. It's a promise that we have. It's his word. He's with us. He loves us. He's for us. He's given us the land. And those things that you're afraid of when it comes to you entering into what it is that God has for you, those things are more afraid of you than you are of them. Because the true and the living God is on our side. Nothing can stand in our way. And so we see this woman, Rahab, she has this knowledge of God, but without knowing who he is, a fear of what's to come. She has faith in him. What does this faith lead her to? What is the action? Well, first of all, she defies the king of Jericho. She turns her back upon the king of Jericho, and she gives her allegiance to the God of heaven and the God of earth that she calls upon or quotes or speaks of uh, back up there in verse 11. And, and, And in so doing, what she essentially does is that she repents. That is the definition of repentance. It's to turn away from the lifestyle, the thing that you are giving your allegiance to presently, and to turn to the true and the living God. And that's what Rahab does. And and though she would be the only one in the whole city that would do it, she does it because she knows that she's on the losing team and she wants to be made right and put right with God. And so she, she joins the team with God. What's the result of this faith? Look with me at verse 15. It says, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us to swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, 
your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. And so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid upon him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. What was the result of this woman Rahab's courage and her repentance and her faith in the Lord? Well, first of all, she's met with salvation on these terms. That first of all, her devotion be to the Lord. She is not to turn again and tell the king of Jericho what became of the men or what their business is. She's not to go back and serve the old king. But her allegiance is to, from that point forward, be with God and to be with the people of God. So her allegiance is with him. And and then secondly, she is to identify, listen carefully, identify with the blood. You say, wait a minute. I didn't see any blood there. Listen, they said, bind this scarlet cord and let it hang from, let it mark the window that you let us down. Let your house be marked by this scarlet thread that you've let down. Listen, Bible students, the scarlet thread throughout the Bible always speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ. The scarlet, and we read about it in the life of Jacob. We see it here in Rahab. It surfaces again in David. Isaiah brings it up. We see Jesus as he's led out to be crucified, being robed with a scarlet robe. The scarlet cord, the scarlet thread weaves throughout the Bible. It always speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ. The scarlet color was a red dye that was made with the toleth worm. It was blood red. That was the color of the scarlet. And it always symbolizes that blood. And it's that color, that scarlet. Why scarlet, that they would say, bind the scarlet? Is it because that's what was convenient? No. It was the Holy Spirit giving to you and me the understanding of what was taking place in Rahab's life here. She was identifying with the blood. See, salvation can only come by the blood. It doesn't come by our knowledge. It doesn't come by our works. It doesn't come by our effort. We can't make a deal with two spies being in the right place at the right time and somehow work our salvation through it. But they said, look, you put this blood upon your house. You apply the scarlet and you leave it there. And when that scarlet is there, you will be saved if you stay in the house. Amazingly, when the walls of Jericho, this is a spoiler, When the walls of Jericho fall, one part of the wall doesn't fall. Guess which part? It's the part where the scarlet cord is bound. You see, she's saved. Why? Because she gives her allegiance to the Lord, number one. She turns her life over to him. And she identifies with the blood. The blood of Christ, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God is applied to her life. She is then justified before the God of heaven and earth. Two times the New Testament speaks of this woman Rahab. 
And in both instances, it talks about how she is justified. The word justified means to be viewed upon just as if I'd never sinned. You hear the word justified in there? That's what it means to be justified. And when God looked at this woman Rahab, no matter who she had been in a previous life, or no matter what was going on in her at this time, at the moment she gave her allegiance to God, identified with the blood, she was justified from all of her sins. And ultimately, she was then included in the family of God. You see, after Rahab escapes from Jericho, she marries an Israelite whose name is Salmon. Not like the fish, you know. That's like the thing that guys now, they wear pink shirts, but when you say, hey, that's a pink shirt, they say, nah, it's Salmon. She married a Salmon, this woman Rahab. She married a Jew, and not just any Jew, but if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you say, please, don't turn us to the begats. Yes, it's the begats. It tells us in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1, it says that Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David the king. Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of King David, and ultimately she would be included in the genealogy of the family that would bring Jesus Christ into the world. You say, what's the symbolism? Here's the symbolism, is that this woman, who had been a heathen Canaanite, lying prostitute woman who was condemned, was saved from all of her past sins, justified, completely forgiven, and brought into the family of God, because of her faith in who God was. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that is bringing his people into their inheritance in Jericho. God found this woman, and he spared her life. He gave her a future, a place in his family, and an eternal testimony. And here's the testimony that Rahab speaks to you and to me today, that there is no one on this planet that is too bad to be saved. There's no one that God cannot reach, no matter what your life might look like from the outside. Well, verse 23, it says, So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint hearted because of us. What does chapter 2 of Joshua teach to us? It teaches us three things as we close. First of all, it teaches us that no matter what God is doing in our lives or in the world or in any situation, he's always interested in saving those who need to be saved. We need to be careful as the people of God that people never become faceless beings. We have our thing that we're going through, dealing with. We have our situations, our needs, our desires, our battles, our struggles that we go through. And God's working in all of those things. But in the meantime, who is it that God might be trying to use you to reach? See, these spies were on a mission to go in and to gain intelligence. But God's plan was to reach this woman, Rahab. How many people do we pass every day in supermarkets, at gas stations, 
cars that we pass by, people that we walk past on the rail trail. We see them, and, and to us, they can just become faceless beings. God's always interested in the one whom he could save, and in whatever circumstance he's working in, he's always seeking to save those that will put their faith in him. So may, may we never pass the Rahab, who's on the outside, everything looks like they're, they're fine. That this person would never need God. They're not thinking about God. There's nothing wrong. But inside, they're dying. We would never fall for the facade that a person puts up, that they're okay and everything's fine, but inwardly, they're empty and they're in need of God. Would he give us eyes and ears as his people to recognize that? The second thing that we learn from this chapter is that our territory awaits us. You may for 40 years have been thinking that the giants of the land are too strong for me, when in actuality for 40 years they've been petrified of you. May we as the people of God take the territory that God has given us to take, and may we be ever advancing, growing in our walk with him, in our experience with him, in our understanding of him, and of, of walking in his promises, in his fullness. May we ever be growing in those things. That we would never say, well, I can, I can never be an evangelist. Or I can never be free from that particular sin. Or I can never get over my fear of public speaking or of whatever else it might be. May we never bind ourselves and build a fence around us and say, the giants of that particular area are too great for me. Or may we ever be like Joshua and say, the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of us. Because listen, church, nothing can stand before us if God is with us. And then finally, we learn from this chapter that no one is too bad to be loved by God and to be saved by him. There's some people that might be too good. There's a lot of people that are too good. They think they don't need God. That God is for the harlot or the prostitute or for the liar, but I'm better, I'm above that, I'm beyond that. No, 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 no. He is the God who loves the heathen, Canaanite, lying, prostitute woman. And everything that's before that and everything that's even beyond that, there's nothing too far for the outreached hand of our Savior. He gave his life for all. May we never forget that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for this testimony that gives to us a glimpse of your great compassion in the midst of this scene that sets the stage for such a great slaughter. I pray that we would never lose sight of your heart, that you said that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear your still small voice as you would lead us to those whom you would desire to save. I pray, Father, that you would give to us a heart of compassion that as we see lost souls, Lord, that we would yearn for them, that we'd long for them, that you'd give us the boldness and the wisdom and the courage to speak to them, Lord, that they might receive you and that they'd truly be brought into the family of faith. Lord, we just ask that tonight you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be your witnesses, your lights in this world. And Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't yet know you, that they can identify more with Rahab in this story than with Joshua. Lord, I pray that tonight you would reach that soul, that heart, and that you do a work in them like you did with Rahab. 
That tonight you give them the insight, Lord, to see that they're on the wrong team. That their city is headed for destruction, damnation, for fire. But that there is a true and the living God and that you would birth hope in them, Lord. And we pray that there would be salvation in these last days. For you said, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit upon all flesh. You said your sons and daughters will prophesy. That your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. That on your servants and your handmaidens you'd pour out of your spirit. And so we ask you, Lord, that you would give us that heart, that ready mind to be able to speak to those who need to hear, and that there would be a harvest of souls in these last days. We thank you so much for this time, Father. We pray that you would let this word be our guide, that it would continue to speak to us as we leave from this place. The Bible tells us that to as many as received him, To them he gave the right to be called the sons or the daughters of God. It isn't enough just to know about him or to even have a history with him or to say that you've seen the works that he's done. The Bible says that you need to receive him. The Bible says that when you do that, when you receive the gift of his salvation, that he'll move into your life and he'll save your soul. Is there anyone here tonight, you've come, you've heard tonight God speak to your heart? And you heard about his love that he has for the sinner, the lost person, and his desire to save. Is there anyone here tonight that you want to receive Christ? Just by the raising of the hand to acknowledge that, that, that you need Jesus. If you need Jesus tonight, just lift up your hand and say, I want God in my life. I need to be saved, forgiven. I see a couple of hands. That's you. All you need to do is you need to pray and ask Jesus to forgive your sins and to move into your life and to save you. And the Bible says that he will. And that your status in God's book will pass from death to life. And that's the story of the cross. It's what he came to do. To give his life for us a ransom so that we could be forgiven and saved. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, for those tonight that, that, that desire to put their faith in you. Lord, that you would meet them where they are. And that you would save them, Lord. And we just thank you, Father, for what you're doing in this place and in our hearts. We pray that you continue in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.